Today's podcast brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to the Weekly Grill. There are a few certainties in life, but our topic today on the Grill for Beef Central is a certainty. Whenever farmers and graziers get together, they talk about two certainties. One is the weather, the other prices. We'll leave the weather to the experts because today we have on the grill two of Australia's outstanding experts on property prices across rural Australia. Later on, I'll be with Tim McKinnon from LAW Real Estate and we'll be checking property price movements across southern Australia and that will include South Australia and WA. First up, to cover that wide expanse from Broome to the Brisbane Valley, commonly known as Northern Australia, let's welcome the Queensland State Manager of Real Estate for Elders, Tim Lame. Tim, welcome again. You're on the grill. Good morning, Harry. Tim, we last spoke a couple of years back. I think it's fair to say that prices uh, nowadays have settled somewhat from those heady days of 2021. Oh, look, Harry, from 2021, um, you know, through to certainly the end of last year, we still saw, you know, very solid price growth really across, uh, you know, the state uh, and indeed the country from a broader agricultural perspective. So if I look at, you know, the last four years from a retrospective uh, viewpoint, you know, really most people have probably seen, you know, 80 to 100% asset value growth uh, in a lot of that area. So your assets have doubled uh, in a very short space of time. And driven by all the positive attributes of you know strong commodity prices, a low interest rate environment, that's, energy a, that, that's extraordinary, isn't it? When you think about it, eighty to one hundred percent, has that ever occurred before in such a short period of time for rural property values? Uh, we have seen that. If, uh, leading up to the uh, the GFC, uh, we certainly had similar sort of value growth in some parts of the market. So the Northern Territory is probably the one that. Uh, you know, really went up in excess of 100% over a three or four year period leading up to about 2007-8. And then subsequently, uh, you know, the ban on the law of export trade, interest rates started to move. A combination of things saw that market um, sort of roll back down. And, you know, by 2013, which you know, not that long ago, we really had a market that was um, almost dominated at the receiver level. But that was more isolated back then. This period of time, transactionally, it's been across the whole of Australia. It doesn't matter really the commodity class as well. So it's that whole broad push of you know institutional investment opportunity in agriculture, different uh, capital sources looking for different things within the sector, and a lot of change of land use over that period of time. So that horticultural market, you know, water drives a lot of things as we know, and so we've seen a lot of value shift in those areas as well. Let's uh, look first at those giant pastoral properties uh, across the north, which have uh, have any changed hands recently. I get the impression that this area, at least, is softening somewhat for a a couple of reasons. Is is that fair comment? Look, it is fair comment, and it's not to say that there's not the demand for it. It's probably more the supply side at the moment, which is the challenge. We've got plenty of clients that are looking for specific assets to fill out part of their supply chain models but they're quite um, you know, discerning in what they're after. Those assets are well sought after, but there's not many available. The There is still capital in the market that is, again, looking for new players. So the carbon-type play money, you know, that's certainly out there at the moment. But again, they're looking for specific assets in specific locations. I think the reality is that the market is just very tightly held at the moment. 
we released our um, rural property report, and it's covering the up to the March quarter and our June one will go up very soon. But the transactional volumes on a year-on-year year, uh, up to the end of uh, March were down sort of 21% in Queensland from the previous year, and the value of those assets traded down around 8.5%. Having said that, the value of the underlying rate per hectare on a medium price point was up 136 so it still reflects a very tightly held market, but that corporate money uh, still out there, obviously on a rise of the asset values, they're probably finding it harder to make some of the sums add up at the moment. Yes, I want to get into that ag, the carbon business in a moment, but um, cattle prices have gone down, obviously, and interest rates are up. Is, is that the two major factors in what's going on in the market, the big ones across the north? Well, it's feeding into it, and um, you know, our view is that it's not just the interest rates alone that are the, the shift, so it is the combination of all of those, those higher costs to operate. There is obviously the adjustment in the cattle market at the moment, and other players will look through that cycle in the short term, and uh, you know, hopefully it does start to rebound. The the interest rates, that's probably the one, and it's, it's not necessarily... The, the affordability for those that have stepped in early because they've come in on the back of other assets that uh, they can leverage across their portfolio. I think one of the challenges is starting to evolve is just how much the, the financiers can get the, the buyer up to in terms of their borrowing power now because of the way they have to assess those uh, new lending requests. And so I think that creates a part of a challenge just for the available capital in the market for people to execute. You heard a while ago in the residential market that you know, they estimated the borrowing power was probably down around 20%. Well, if that sort of flowed through to the agricultural sector as well, then that has a big impact between what a buyer can get to versus what a vendor might be looking for. Not so long back, we had that uh, the FOMO, FOMO acronym, which I thought was extremely interesting, fear of missing out. Fear of missing out, that's no longer a, a factor in the market. No, not to the same extent today. And in fact, we've actually probably seen an increased number of properties at auction that have passed in um, and subsequently gone back onto the market for negotiation. Some of those have settled or, or transacted and others haven't. So there's more of that. There's certainly less buyers turning up to auctions. Uh, there are less bids from the floor. Um, so we're seeing that early sort of stage trend. But again, you know, quality assets in the right location, if they fit a certain brief, they'll, they'll be knocked over in the rush. It's just that adjustment uh, outside of those blue ribbon type areas is probably where we're seeing most of that change. Can I touch on farming across the, the north, which I've always felt was pretty challenging, but in particular at the moment, there's a lot of fizz about cotton country. Is there any evidence of any move in the cotton expansion? Certainly, there's some clients that are obviously trialling cotton at, at various scales and starting to you know, determine those opportunities. I think the challenge will be just having that infrastructure for the, the ginning and all of that as a, as a supply chain sort of builds up to those areas. Um, you know, the, the activity that's happening in the Northern Territory, you know, very positive. The yields are extremely positive um, and probably better than what most people have anticipated so it certainly opens itself up for, a, again, another change of land use opportunity in certain locations. And I expect we'll see a continuation of that over the next uh, you know, three to five years, to be honest. Yeah, there are strong rumours around, Tim, of up to four gins being planned across the, north, uh, across the north. Is that being discussed or is there any concrete evidence that this is actually taking place? 
Look, I'm not aware of that, Kerry, so I'm not in a position to comment. I I don't have that detail. What about, okay, moving on to something that is happening and right in front of us, what about the carbon issue? Carbon credits, carbon sequestration, is that part of the Northern Property Price Equation? Look, it is, and it ranges for obviously different methodologies. So if you start from the north and work through to the south, You've got the savannah burning opportunities in, in northern Australia, the northern territory, and the northern northern northwest of Queensland. Um, as you move into sort of the the better soil country, higher rainfall, you come into your soil carbon areas, and then you've still got your sort of human induced revegetation, or your you know your growing of vegetation opportunities to broadly categorise them. And look, there is plenty of demand for those assets. There are multiple domestic and international uh, parties who have capital that they've strategically allocated for this space. And again, they create another opportunity and another competition factor in the market for the right asset in the right location, Kerry. There are some scale, you know, the soil, the uh, amount of rainfall, the scale of the asset, um, the tenure of ownership, they all feed into the decision-making where all of those things come together, there is certainly plenty of demand. Uh, we field uh, a lot of inquiry uh, on a regular basis, both at a buy side and then at a sell side opportunity where people are looking to take advantage of that. And I think the challenge is there that if those additional benefits of carbon in conjunction with a good you know, commercial scale agricultural operation. And so that's probably been some of the shift that most of these players still want to be running a good agricultural operation as well as benefiting from the additionality of what a carbon uh, program might look like. And then on top of that, you would add biodiversity potentially as well. Of course. So so are the buyers in this game, in the carbon game, are they buying to create carbon credits or on properties or because they already exist? Uh, Both. So from both a greenfield perspective and they'll work up the whole project if they identify the right land and, and all of those scalable attributes or um, they are also happy to buy properties which have established projects. They'll do their due diligence, and if the project fits their profile, they are very happy to transact on that as well. Do buyers talk about weather, the possibility of another El Nino, which of course is a lighter rainfall? Is that in any property evaluation discussion? Look, it's not a huge topic. We obviously know that's just part of the Australian agricultural landscape. You know, In the short term, it, it might people just slow down some decisioning but no across the board not a uh, not a huge issue everyone's consciously uh, aware and wary yeah. but it's not really influencing any decisioning at the moment now Tim a low key but significant development across the north in recent years has been the widespread installation of exclusion fencing what has this done to property values yeah, it's a great question Kerry and, and I suppose it links into the ability for the property to manage its production area. So effectively, you know, you know, the kangaroos almost know and, and the you know, the dogs and all of those things. When um, the exclusion fencing uh, has gone in, it's let people manage their properties uh, on a different sort of basis. It certainly has added value across the board for the majority of uh, landholders. And from a return perspective, it's let landholders more sort of balance out their return profiles. So it's been a positive attribute across the board. Not to say there's a, a huge discount if, if they're not in place. Again, good country in the right locations. Again, there's still plenty of demand for that. But the opportunity ultimately you know, to let somebody manage their environment, manage the predation of the dogs in those areas, it's certainly been very beneficial. 
um, across the board. Yes, that exclusion fencing along with, uh, of course, the associated pasture improvement, can can it lift to any major degree the beast per hectare capability of properties? I assume it would have to be positive. Look, that's uh, certainly, uh, I think, what's been evidenced uh, for people that have done that. Again, just that ability to, to you know, manage your pastures ultimately a bit better and take that grazing pressure around uh, around the property uh, differently. And look, certainly it, it lets some people obviously go back into the sheep. We've seen probably more uh, goats, um, you know, big come into some of the uh, programs, even at the corporate uh, sort of client level. They've got goats as part of their programs as well. So it's, it's a now enabled different levels of commodity mix potentially for some operators which then helps maximise their opportunity for their uh, country. I have to mention macadamia farms, Tim, because they were all the go a few years back. Everybody was wanted to buy a macadamia property, plant trees, etc., etc. And now macadamias are a bit of a nightmare investment, aren't they? Oh, not a nightmare investment, Kerry. Certainly the market with the current price of uh, macadamias um, is challenging. But again, there is still investment demand at the institutional level almost for, for younger planted uh, macadamia assets where they can look through the short-term price cycle and take a, they're taking a long-term view on the sector. From the back end of last year, sort of a, a you know, large transaction um, that the Elders Business facilitated around Bundaberg, you know, from that transaction, there really hasn't been any major, major transactions uh, of note. There have been some, and don't get me wrong, but the um, again the the appetite has probably come away at the moment, and it's probably hard to find that short term value if you're looking at the current price regime and the current cost to operate. Investors into that asset class are taking that long term view of the asset, and and people that I've spoken to have a view that these price parameters now the supply of options for the additional product will be identified and uh, start to create that uplift in the value of the asset. Yes, uh, I, I know that they were mentioned as being a potential coal mine, but now China appears to be becoming self-sufficient with macadamias. South Africa's got thousands and thousands of acres of macadamias planted and ready to flourish. Absolutely. Um, you know, China have that uh, state of policy to become largely self-sufficient. As you said, the, the South African supply has come on as well. We've got additional supply coming to the market and... At the end of the day, it's about finding the additional demand side of that equation to take that product through to alternative uses and in processing opportunities. So that's the challenge, I think, for the sector at the moment. But there is still institutional uh, appetite for those assets, again, in the right location. Um, but there's probably some um, some price adjustments that may be seen when we see some transactions go through. What about that good farming country on the downs uh, from west of Brisbane, that's still very strong, I assume. Absolutely. And look, I think for a lot of that inner downs country, because the scale in a lot of cases isn't, um, you know, the huge areas, you know, it represents those pieces that people can absorb. Again, the balance sheets of, you know, pretty well all the clients are very strong. The banks tell me they really don't have too many concerns around any asset impairment. So people have the capacity um, and they can absorb some of those good quality bite-sized pieces, whether it's a, a dry land block, block or an irrigation uh, asset, there is uh, still plenty of appetite and demand for that style of asset and, and it can be absorbed within people's capacity across the board. And overseas investors uh, seeking 
uh, good ag ag products and ag land in Australia are they still around? Yeah, and and look to be honest, Kerry, they've never really left. Um, in, in my perspective, it's just that again with a, a significant uplift in the values of the assets. Some of them have struggled to make some of the transaction values work at the uh, the current you know land rate per hectares that are, are um, being transacted. So that's seen a slowdown in it, but the appetite is still there. And again, it, it does have different bias. So you've got others that are looking just for that straight broad uh, acre grazing, cropping country. You've got that carbon opportunity uh, play as well, coming from that institutional market as well. So it, it ranges, but you know, the appetite hasn't really ever stepped away. It's just that they're probably finding it a bit harder to um, to get in. And certainly the local, you know, larger scale family corporates and larger scale operators, they've competed very strongly with that corporate market um, you know, and effectively are outbidding in uh, often the uh, the corporate buyer for some of those assets that come into play. Yeah. So much of agribusiness, including property, is cyclical. What part of the cycle do you think uh, the Northern Australia property business is in at present? That's a great question because probably, you know, a couple of years ago we'd say, well, we're getting towards the top of the cycle and then the cycle kept running and kept running. But it really does feel like now, again, transactional volumes down. Um, that FOMO, as we said, has come back out of the market. So certainly a, uh, a flattening out of the, of the market. Uh, it's not to say that we've got any uh, corrections. Again, our data still suggests a, a positive value movement in the median price per hectare. Yeah, not as strong as it was, so only about 2.3% the last quarter. But overall, probably a flattening of the market. So if I put that in terms of a property clock, I'd suggest we're you know pretty well at that 12 o'clock type mark or, or very close to that 12 o'clock type mark. So, so still confident? Yes, yes, absolutely. There, there's nothing that suggests the, you know, the market's going to fall out of bed tomorrow. Tim Lane, Manager of Real Estate for Elders Queensland and the Northern Territory. Thanks again for your insights on the grill for Beef Central. Thanks, Tim. Always a pleasure, Kerry. Thank you. Back in a moment. More property, this time across southern Australia with another Tim, Tim McKinnon from LAW Real Estate. First, this brief message. Breathe easy with Rhinogard, the only single-dose intranasal vaccine for control of IBR in your cattle. Get in control of bovine respiratory disease, that's BRD, before it begins. Just deliver a single intranasal spray of Rhinogard for rapid IBR control and add a single dose of Bovishield MH1 for protection against pneumonia. For rapid protection against MH and IBR in your weaners and pre-feedlot cattle, breathe easy with Bovishield and Rhinogard. Available from your local vet today. For over 180 years, Elders has proudly been supporting Australian livestock producers. Elders supports your business across the production cycle with more than 350 livestock agents, access to specialist livestock advice and auction services. Draw on our established relationships to buy and sell commercial and stud livestock across domestic and international markets. Enjoy Del Credere guaranteed payments when you sell with Elders. Livestock funding also available subject to approval. Elders for Australian agriculture. Welcome back. Our podcast today focuses on rural property values. What's been going on? What might be the trend ahead? We've heard from Tim Lane, the elders guru looking at Northern Australia. Let's hear now about the South and welcome to the microphone, a senior director from LAWD, Tim McKinnon. Tim, welcome. Hey, Kerry. How are you going? 
Very well, thank you, mate. Now, Lord has been, LAWD has been kicking a few goals lately. I'm guessing you are very positive about real property values in the southern part of Australia. Yeah, Kerry, it has been an um, interesting last couple of years, I'd say, three or four years. We have seen some, some rapid increase in, in prices right across southern Australia and probably right across Australia in general, really. But I think we're probably getting to that point where it's, it's starting to slow. Uh, we've seen rapid increase in um, interest rates, which has sort of probably snuck up on people in terms of just how quickly it has risen. And also seen uh, some commodity price changes, in, um, especially in, in livestock, sheep and beef. But there has been some, some positives. Uh, if you take the dairy industry, for example, it's probably a record, it is at record high milk price now. So that's, um, that's having an impact as well. Tim, and also, of course, uh, one thing that will always give a bit of a fizz to land values, that recent almost unseasonal rain across the south of Australia, did it have much of an impact on property prices? It's hard to say, really, like, at such... Um, It'd make people feel a lot better about themselves, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think so. That's probably more the, the just the sentiment gives people. There was probably a bit of a panic there. And they go back a couple of months ago, thought, geez, everything's going to be dry, but... I know sort of through that Victorian region during June, there was some pretty decent rainfalls and everything sort of turned from being uh, a little bit dry in northern Victoria to being very wet very quickly. So yes. there's a lot of subsoil moisture there. I think it's more the, it was just the top part that we hadn't sort of linked up. So yeah, it got very wet very quick. So constantly here, you can always make money out of mud. Now, let's start with the, uh, the hot property area because I suspect the... Uh, Southern property market for primary producers has a lot more going for it at present than the northern market. What, what's what's hot across the south? Anything? It's interesting you say that, Kerry. Sort of, I sort of cover right across the um, the country. I still see Queensland is there's still pockets of that that are that are hot. If you come down into the south, you'd say the south west Victoria has had probably a, a catch up from so I'm saying right down around that Warrnambool area down through that dairy region there's been a, an increase in values through there over the last couple of years but probably in the last six months it's had a, a pretty big uptick it sort of lagged if you take the western district so just a little bit further north had a, a really big run over two to three years and that's probably you know, it's more in that sheep and cattle and wheat uh, area through there that's they had a wet season last year, so it probably affected their cropping yields, that sort of thing. So it, it's probably come back a little bit in that area. But if you go further south down to the coast in that dairy area, it's had a had a big increase. And traditionally, that southern area was a lot more valued on a dollar per acre uh, compared to that um, that next belt up sort of through that um, Ballarat, Skipton, through the Hamilton area. But it sort of got out of whack there. It's probably starting to correct a bit now. You've mentioned some country which is certainly wool-producing country. I'm quite interested in this because the wool price is not struggling, but it's hardly brilliant. Is there any move away from wool in terms of property and what might be done with it? You go out into that uh, southern um, western division of New South Wales, there's a lot of a lot of dorper and um, you know, meat sheep out there now that are starting to take over. So, yeah, we're probably seeing that, that move away from some of those those areas that have traditionally been, you know, strong wool growing areas that are now we're starting to see that that meat sheep and, and sheep coming in from the uh, from the west and being fattened and closer into um, in the high rainfall area before being processed. So 
yeah, we are seeing a change, especially in that, that Western Division, yeah. So are we seeing, in fact, fewer and fewer wool growers in Victoria? Probably we're seeing more there's that mixed farming, I guess, yeah. for, for Victoria. So, it, yeah, they've got to put in both camps, I guess. So, But it's really the underlying land value of everything else around it. So when you come into that Victoria region, you've still got, you know, it might be a wool grower, but if they're selling, it's not particularly necessarily going to be a wool grower that's buying. It might be a fat lamb operator or it could be a mixed farmer. So... Yeah, but it's not really having that impact on the on that sort of land value as such. Yeah. And dairy country, you mentioned how well dairy has been doing. Is there selling to any degree here, even consolidation sales where the neighbour buys your block or uh, is it... Uh, yeah, starting to see a bit more of uh-huh. that, yeah, where you know, dairy had a tough there for a number of years and, you know, the last... Probably two years have been really good, so we're starting to see the, the dairy farmers actually, yeah, reinvested and buying more land. So, yeah, definitely seeing seeing that. There's been some corporate activity as well, but that there's probably only a couple of big major players now in that that dairy space. The most sort of corporate activity in dairy has been in in Tasmania. There's been a large number of participants over there from Aurora Dairies and Forty South Dairies as well as prime values. So, yeah, there's some, some big operators now in, in Tasmania in that corporate dairy space. And where are they from? Where are they based? Are the, the corporates are, are locals? Are they overseas as well? Uh, they've got overseas money, but, yeah, based out of, yeah, the mainland, essentially. And where's that overseas money, Tim? Is it uh, Canadian? Which seems yeah, typically common. North American. Canadian. Yeah, typically North yeah, American. Yeah. Canadian and uh, Inuit money. Yeah. Any, any more Kiwi yeah. money? Coming into dairy, they had their lesson here, and uh, no, they've probably had more of their yeah. more of their run. Yeah. So uh, let's uh, check Tasmania generally. I mean, there's some good farming country down there. We have to say, uh, is it uh, attracting interest at all? Yeah, a lot of interest in in Tasmania, right across the board from from mixed farming, and then right through to you know, if you had a, a premium vineyard down there, whether it's a, a Pinot or white wine down there, it. Um, yeah, there's plenty of interest from from mainland in that uh, in that wine sector. So, especially the premium wine sector, if you the the warm climate wines are, are doing it obviously very tough at the moment. But down in Tasmania, if you've got a a site, even a, a vacant land site that's suitable for planting, there's a number of people down there or parties interested in developing vineyards. So there's that. Obviously, there's our guys at uh, LAWD, Danny Thomas. They did a couple of big sales down there. Sold uh, Vaucluse a couple of years ago for, or last year for a record price for over 100 million, and they just completed another one south of Launceston for for 30 million. Rockthorpe. Now that that's another record down there. I think it was bought by someone from Tasmania, but not one of the locals nearby. And yeah, I think there's a bit of adjustment there for the for those locals that need to um, yeah, if they want to acquire some of these uh, better assets to to reset their sites, I think. I don't think they need more evidence than the price of Tasmanian wine in the bottle shops at present. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Uh, when you talk about investors, is the question of carbon credits and carbon sequestration, is that ever mentioned in property purchases or are there, sign- are there significant plans or is that just a byproduct of the land valuation? No, there's specific people out there looking for the carbon. No, uh, There's no doubt about that. It's probably not a a day or at least a couple of days that go by where I don't have a conversation about about carbon. 
there's still a lot of confusion in the market. I think absolutely um, yes. Are they buying? Are they buying for potential? Or are they buying for actual carbon credits that are there? At the moment, you're typically seeing they're buying for potential. So there's we saw in the Western Division again in New South Wales, and I think it was reported in Beef Central that a number of properties that sold out there with carbon agreements in place didn't really seem to be a, a positive or negative on on values there, but where we are seeing the real activity is, I suppose you call them developers that are coming in and wanting greenfield sites, putting their own projects on there. We'll probably see that change or slow now because the human-induced um, regeneration has, has changed or has had to be lodged, I think, by 30 June and in place by 30 September. So that'll probably slow that development side down. But, yeah, there is still a heap of heap of inquiry about carbon, it's really, I think people trying to get their heads around it, both people coming in and, and landowners as well. Could we be seeing the start of a, a boom in this approach to the, the carbon question, major purchases of potential property or property that's been, I would think, scoped and seen being ready for carbon? Uh, is that, are we start, starting a boom here, do you think? Oh, I think you put it all in that, if you say carbon or the the natural capital, I suppose. So yeah. it's not all about carbon. I think there's still people inquiring about just broad broad land or, or raw natural land. I think so. That's yeah. There's definitely people who are who are looking at that. Yeah, I've sort of referred back. There is still a little bit of sort of confusion in that. That some people have got their heads around it, and you know, I suppose time will tell to see how that performs. And yeah, there's just a lot of people running around. Sort of involved in it, but there's still that still that confusion. I have to agree. There, there is confusion, and there are a lot of people running around like jokes with their heads cut off. But it, it will resolve <laughs> itself. But it's a it's still a question, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's just going to be a matter of time, and eventually it'll it'll probably settle down. And yeah, when people get their head around it, the the other thing is that with the carbon agreement, not every agreement's the same, and everything's difficult to from a valuation point of view if we're looking at it. Every agreement's different. Uh, different. It's hard to get your your hands on those agreements. A lot of them are, are tied up in confidentiality agreements, that sort of thing, and then they're not all registered on title. So it's it's really hard to search yeah. that and get those details to to analyse from an evaluation point of view. Oh, I would just say two words here: caveat emptor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's exactly right. Tim, um, I mentioned Tassie. Tassie, South Australia, all that good grain country, that would be pretty valuable at present given the price, world price of grains. Yeah, South Australia and WA. South yep. Australia's had, um, you've got the, the strong areas in, you know, the, the York Peninsula is still seeing really strong prices achieved there and, and Air Peninsula is still ticking along. The one that's not a lot of corporate activity or next to none in South Australia, where you've seen the real corporate activity is in Western Australia. There's been a huge amount of investment over there. We've seen some big uplift in, in values around sort of the right across, but Esperance in particular. Is that uh, a, farming country, a, a, a farming country or grazing country? Though? Yeah, farming country uh-huh. predominantly. So sort of your typical um, big investors that have been over there, you know, the likes of the Macquarie's, you know, Veritas and... Warakiri and um, we've seen Sheraton Farms sell to XL Farms, who are probably more a mixed farming enterprise. But yeah, and I think you know one of the big things is um, we've got a good team of guys in 
in WA at the moment and the way they talk about, you know, dollars per ton produced over there compared to what it is to the East Coast, there's still a big big difference there. And I think that's the the investors are looking at the same thing and yeah, seen quite a bit of inquiry in, in WA. So the impending end to the export of uh, live sheep and lambs, that, that hasn't had an impact on property values? Yeah, I'd say it's a mixed farm over there. It's a lot harder to sell than a you know, or a grazing property um, than, than a, a wheat cropping uh, enterprise. Yeah, obviously the live ex is having, having an impact. Plus you put in um, you know, what is it, 40-50% reduction in cattle prices as well. So that's, that's having a pretty sizable impact on some of those sort of mixed farms. But yeah, when you've got the investment, Investors looking at the, the cropping enterprises, there's still um, still a lot of appetite there. And, and, and you mentioned that wine country in uh, South Australia was doing, and Victoria doing well, and Tassie. What about wine country in, in uh, Western Australia? In West, yeah, in the, in the Margaret River, it's still, yeah, it's still, again, premium vineyards over there with good uh, white wine. It's um, yeah, still in demand and still seeing some, some good sales occur there. So, yeah, it's not a huge area either, though. It's a, it's a pretty... Sort of small, small pockets just down there in that um, Margaret River region. So, not a heap of transactions occur there, but the ones that have been occurring there in the, the last six months have still been at strong values. And heading north, Gascoigne, further north to the Kimberley, uh, that's always been a reasonably solid market depending on seasonal conditions. Uh, is it still going reasonably well up there? Yeah, Kimberley's still going strong. Uh, I was over there only um, about six weeks ago, and they're just having a phenomenal season there. Obviously, there was the impact of the, yeah. the big flood that occurred over there. Yeah, they um, did, but they did have um, one of the best big wets or wet seasons for a long, long time, didn't they? Yeah, and it's continued to, to go. So I was there in, in June, and they were still getting – had rain there in some parts of the, the property. Couldn't um, couldn't drive around. So, that you know, to have that in June – is, yeah, it's phenomenal. So there hasn't been a whole lot of sales, but the Kimberley, again, is a, is a pretty small pocket when you boil it down to the, the number of properties and the ones that do trade. So there's a sale of Christmas Creek there right at Fitzroy Crossing that, that made strong value, but it was still good value, I think. The Kimberley is an interesting one compared to the Northern Territory and even Queensland insofar as it sort of lags and it's still you can still see that in the, the prices. Um, it's lagging from where Northern Territory's obviously had a pretty strong run in the last 12 months, and the Kimberley, yeah, just seems to seems to lag a bit from from the Northern Territory. But what do you see when you're offering property? Is there still interest from China, for example, or any other overseas country apart from Canada and North America, and maybe the United States? China's an interesting one. We're probably seeing. Some renewed interest, I suppose you'd say, from China. There's a big deal that happened in southern New South Wales last year. Gundaline Station sold to a Chinese company for, I think, about $120 million. And then down in western Victoria, Mr. Wen has bought a property down, a number of properties down there. I think he just bought one recently around Harrow, Balmoral, that was recorded in the press. So we've probably seen more from the from the privates from, from China. We're not seeing a wave of... Money from China, like we saw, was probably five or six, seven years ago. It's more, yeah, as you say, North American. But we are there is um, money coming from Europe as well. So it's not just Canada and the US. There is it's probably a bit broader than that. Yeah. 
So even Europe's interested. Wow, it's a long time since they've yeah, still some of those pension funds, yeah, yeah, that are that are investing in behind some of the um, the big investment groups in in Australia. So it's not all you know. Some of the if you take the PSPs and they who have invested in Australia with their platform partners, some of the others from Europe are investing with the investment managers over here. So yeah, there could be you know a whole number of investors that are that are putting their money with um, with the investment groups based in here in Australia. Tim, I'll give you ten million dollars to invest in real property across southern Australia. Where do you put your money? <laughs> I think you asked this question quite a bit. Where would I put it? I still think probably Southwest Victoria. There's still good value for money if you look at it. It's based on um, rainfall and rainfall and, and dollars per per acre and what you can actually actually grow. Yeah, it'd be probably in that high rainfall area. Okay, southern southern Victoria or down in into Tasmania. I've got a little way to go to get the ten millions, but I'll keep you in mind. <laughs> <laughs> Tim McKinnon, Senior Director of LAWD. I know you're one of the busiest people in agribusiness. Thank you so much for being on the grill today with Beef Central. Excellent. Thanks, Kerry. Thanks for the time. And thank you for joining us. Until next time. I'm Kerry Lonigan. This has been the Weekly Grill brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis. Mm-hmm.